Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. The sixth chapter of Pirkei Avos is called Kenyan Torah. Kenyan Torah means the acquisition of Torah, how to acquire Torah. Torah is acquired, the Mishnah says. The Torah is acquired in the following ways. You've got to do certain things, certain disciplines, certain behaviors in order to acquire Torah. And it's not easy. We say on Rosh Hashanah, one of the things that we describe God as doing, and we praise Him for it, and we ask Him to do it for us, we say, God acquires his servant, on, in a time of judgment. What does it mean to acquire something? What does acquisition mean? Torah is great, greater even than royalty, because royalty can be acquired in 30 ways, but Torah is acquired in 48 ways. That was 48 steps to the acquisition of Torah. What does acquisition mean? There's the concept of, of transportation. You take this thing from here and you move it to there. You've changed its location. That's called carrying, transporting, moving. Acquiring means the thing can stay in the same place, but it used to be yours, now it's mine. It changes ownership not necessarily location. So the change of location is merely a matter of movement. Acquisition means it changes ownership. It wasn't mine, now it is. How do I acquire? Well, I gotta buy it, I gotta pay for it, I gotta haul it away, I gotta, I gotta do something to make it mine, and then it changes ownership. It doesn't belong to its previous owner. It now belongs to me. What does it mean that God acquires? In the Rosh Hashanah Davani, we say God acquires his servants in a, ti- in a time of judgment. In other words, when I'm in trouble and I'm like being sold on the open market, I'm asking God to acquire me, ransom me, buy me off, buy me out, uh, buy me. <laughs> Make me yours because I don't want to belong to uh, the bank, (laughs) to the loan shark. But what does it mean that God has to acquire? Isn't everything his? So what does it mean to acquire Torah? We are told over and over again, one of the first things we're taught as children, the first thing we're supposed to say when we begin to speak is that Torah tziva lanu Moshe, that the Torah which Moshe brought to us is an inheritance to every Jew. Now what does it mean, acquire Torah? It's mine. I've inherited. So what does it mean to make something yours? We could spend a year on this. Kone, Kinyan. A person can study Torah all his life and never acquire it. He knows it. He understands it. 
He hasn't acquired it. It's never become his. It's a thing. It's a religious obligation. It's a nice study. It's a brilliant, but it's not his. He and the Torah have remained two separate things. Torah belongs to God. Torah belongs in heaven. And I am me. Got my own problems. <laughs> two separate things. I had a famous expression. Somebody said uh, to, I think it was the Alta Rebbe, Somebody said, I've, I've learned the entire Torah. And the Rebbe said, yes, but what has the Torah learned you? You learned it. What has it learned you? Have you made that connection? Has it become you? Or is it something you study? Or even master? But it isn't you. How can Torah be belong in heaven if Moses won the argument that it belongs here? But we're talking about how people feel and people's experience. There are people who study Torah and never make that connection. So what does it mean to acquire Torah? It's like when women say to men, you don't get it. And we're still figuring out, what, what are they talking about? Don't get what? I don't get what I don't get. What am I not getting? Whatever it is, I've heard about it. We've talked about it. What do you mean I don't get it? It's not that I don't know it. I don't get it. There's a huge difference. I know what you want, but I don't get it. Which means it hasn't become me. I can do it for you if that's what you want, but that means you don't get it. It's not that God wants us to study his Torah. Even though it's a big mitzvah, the biggest mitzvah, the mitzvah of all mitzvahs, that's not the point. You don't get it. It's not that he wants you to study his Torah. A father wants his children to get along. If one son says, uh, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give your son some, uh, some of my food, your son, he's your brother. You don't get it. If you give your brother some food, you're not doing the father a favor. Or if you are, then you don't get it. He doesn't want you to do his other son a favor. He wants you and your brother to get along. He wants you to feel like a brother to your brother. Not to do him a favor because you have the same father. So acquiring means becoming one. Not just moving it from one place to another. So you can move the Talmud into your house and put it on your shelf. You don't get Torah that way. You can study it and memorize it and master it and repeat it. You don't get it that way. To acquire Torah means not just to move it from the shelf to your mind, or from somebody else's shelf to your shelf, to get it means you become it. It's in your blood, it's in your nature, it's in your, it's you. That's called acquiring Torah. It says royalty is acquired in 30 ways. You know, royalty can be acquired much easier than that. If you're the viceroy and the uh, sultan dies, that's it. 
You've acquired royalty. No, you haven't. You can wear the clothes, you can walk the walk and talk the talk. You haven't become royalty. And those people who do wear the crown, but they haven't acquired royalty, those are the most dangerous, the most destructive, the most paranoid, the most evil people in history. They wore a crown and they knew that they had no royalty. And so they became paranoid. And they had to kill everybody in sight to prove how powerful they are. Those who have real, true royalty don't have such paranoia and they don't have to prove anything. So to get royalty takes 30 steps. You can't just put on a crown and make like a king. To get Torah also takes 48 steps because you, gotta, you have to get it. You have to acquire it. It has to become you. So, for example, a person learns something in the Torah, and a month later, he's asked about it, and, and he forgot. You forgot? Then obviously you never got it. You can only forget a thought, a subject, an idea. You can't forget who you are, unless you have a disease. You don't forget who you are. If the Torah became you, then there is no forgetting. So to acquire Torah means it becomes you. It's no longer a subject. It's no longer an idea. It's no longer a commandment. It's no longer a teaching. And this is, this, I think, a very painful and crucial. Some guy said to me, he had been studying a little bit of Torah. He was new to it, but he... He was intelligent, he was, he was diligent, and he, he really went to it. He got a lot of knowledge in a very short time. And he tells me the following. His daughter had some questions, teenage daughter. She had some questions when they were sitting at the table on Shabbos. And something about, about creation, about God. And he said like this. He said to her, everything that happens, happens with a divine plan. Since there's only one creator, there's only one force in the universe, everything must come from there. So it's not possible that something could happen that God didn't cause, aside from sin, because he gave free choice. But events cannot possibly be coming from any other source other than God, because if there is another source, then there's another God. <laughs> That's idolatry. Off the subject for a moment, this guy on the radio was being interviewed, a rabbi, I don't know from where, from, and they said to him, so how do you, how do you reconcile the uh, tsunami with your belief in God? And he said, I'll tell you, at first I was very upset with God. You know, why would he cause so much suffering? But then I found out it was an earthquake. Oh, oh, oh an earthquake, oh, okay. It was just an earthquake. <laughs> So who makes earthquakes? Well, you know, the pressure under earth. That's idolatry. So he explained to his daughter that divine providence means that no accidents happen. Nothing happens for no reason or for reasons other than God's reason. So therefore, whatever happens, we should believe that it's for the good. He repeats this to me after Shabbos. And he says, so uh, 
That was pretty good, no? What do you think of my Dvar Torah? What do you think about my Torah teaching for the day? It's very upsetting. If you tell me what the word Kadosh means, that's a Torah thought. That's a Dvar Torah. When you tell your daughter that there's a God who runs the world, why do you call that a Dvar Torah? Is that a quote from somewhere? Is that like from Reader's Digest's quotable quotes, deep thoughts? There is a God, he runs the world, and nothing happens without him. That's a Torah teaching, or is that a fact of life? See, if you call it a Dvar Torah, you don't get it. It is Torah. It's not you. It's not how I think. It's what Torah says. Describing yourself, or are you describing something after all these years? 3,000 years of studying Torah, Torah, and we're still treating it like a thought, an idea, or something you study, or something you believe, or something you worship. Then you haven't acquired it. You're just moving it around from place to place. We ask God to acquire us. Why does God need to acquire us? Aren't we his? Everything is his. We don't want that. We want to be acquired. Acquired implies something personal. If it's impersonal, then it's not an acquisition. It's just an accident of fate. So, look, if I'm Jewish, well, then I'm part of the Jewish people. Yeah, but that's not called acquired. I want to be acquired, to be his. When does this have to happen? When do I really feel a need to be acquired? When I've drifted away. When I haven't been acting like a member of the chosen people when I haven't been acting or feeling like I belong to him. And I've started to belong elsewhere. And I can't say in all honesty, I have no other king than you. I can't say that. I have many kings, many interests and forces and influences that make demands on me, and I feel I have to obey them. I gotta go to work. I gotta. Go, I got. I need. I. I have to. I got many kings. So that's when I feel a need to ask God to acquire me. Buy me, buy me back. Make me yours again, because I belong to the wrong place or to too many places. That's what it really feels like. If a man does something really bad to his wife or against his wife, and then he says, can you take me back? What's the question? How hard is it to take somebody back? Well, yeah, you can let me back. (laughs) That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, can you take me back? That's called getting it. That's called acquire, not just allowed to be. 
So this will explain an amazing thing in the Perkyavos. 48 things you have to do in order to acquire Torah. Let me give you an example of not all 48, but some of them. A minimum of business activity, a minimum of worldly matters, a minimum of worldly pleasure, a minimum of sleep. That's redundant, because <laughs> that is definitely a worldly pleasure. A minimum of conversation, a minimum of laughter, slow to anger, faith in the sages, claiming no credit for your own achievement, loving the ways of righteousness, not being arrogant with learning, not being quick to make halachic decisions, judging others favorably, on and on and on, 48 different things. Difficult, demanding things, great sacrifices. And it gets more difficult as it goes along. The 47th, properly understanding the intent of what he learns. 48, quoting a teaching in the name of its author. So the Rebbe asked, quoting a thing in the name of its author? That's just honest. If you don't, it's plagiarism. This is one of the great virtues that are necessary in order to acquire Torah. And it's the 48th? The ultimate? Doesn't seem to be so impressive. So the Rebbe says, quoting a thing in the name of its author doesn't mean quoting a teaching from one of the sages and mentioning the sage's name. The 48th quality of acquiring Torah is... The, the foundation of all the others. Quoting a thing in the name of the author means, while you study the Torah, remember its author. Not the rabbi who said it, God who gave the Torah. Because if you have all 47 attributes, all 47 virtues, but you forget whose Torah this is, you don't get it. You don't get anything. And that's hard to do, by the way. That's asking a person to go beyond his nature. Because the study of Torah is a very demanding mental discipline. You can't sleep. You can't spend time with food. You can't be distracted. You can't... It's a very intense discipline. Now, who would go for that? Who are we talking to? We're talking about somebody who is intellectual, who loves to study, who is going to immerse himself to this degree in the pursuit of knowledge, studying with friends, with teachers, with students, in order to get a clearer, better, deeper understanding of the subject. He is mastering the subject. He is sacrificing. He is losing sleep. He is giving up pleasures. For him to constantly be aware that this is God's Torah goes against nature. And yet that's the only way you get it. So we see here again that what the Mishnah is demanding is way beyond the letter of the law. By nature, a student studies because it's his subject. Even the Talmud says, where should a person begin the study of Torah? In the subject or, or topic 
that appeals to him. You have to have a feeling for it. If you like the legal stuff, study the Talmud. If you like the uh, more spiritual stuff, study the, the Medrash. If you like the mystical stuff, study the, the Kabbalah, where your heart leads you. Why? Because that's your subject. Otherwise, you're not studying, you're merely reading. So to really study something means it's your subject. You have a feeling for it. You have an interest in it. It's the way your soul works. It's the way your brain works. And so you soak it up and you master it and you acquire it for yourself. You're the sage. You're the expert now. You're the maven. To always bear in mind that this is God's Torah, it goes against the nature. So are we only borrowing it then? No, we're becoming it. We're becoming God's Torah. See what I'm saying? So to really get it means you get it as God's Torah, not as yours. I mean, to put it really crassly, a person masters the Torah, memorizes the entire Talmud by heart, can explain every argument and every debate and every... But he doesn't keep Shabbos. He can tell you the laws of Shabbos, but he doesn't keep it. How did that happen? He studied his subject. He forgot that this is God's Torah. The person who studies the Talmud and the laws of Shabbos and cannot work on Shabbos anymore, he got it. What is the subject? You can say the subject is a debate between sages about what constitutes carrying. That's what the mission is about. If you take this from here to there, is that considered carrying? Well, in a sense, but on the other hand, maybe not. That's what he, that's what he studied. He forgot that God is trying to tell him how to keep Shabbos. <laughs> that when you study the Mishnah about the laws of Shabbos, that's God's way of telling you how to do it and asking you to do it. That part he forgot. So what does it have to do with Tanya? Interestingly, Tanya begins, or actually is based on a verse in the Torah. And the entire 53 chapters of the Tanya are an answer to this fundamental question. The question is, how can the Torah say that serving God is natural to the Jew when in our experience it is not natural at all? To serve God means to love him and to fear him and therefore do his commandments. It is not natural for a Jew to love God or to fear God. It's not natural for any human being, particularly Jews. Because we don't offer our love or our fear easily. We are stiff-necked people. So God says, thou shalt make no uh, graven images. And we say, yeah. A little cow can't hurt. <laughs> We're not easily intimidated, even by God. So to love and fear God is not natural. So to explain what the Torah means when it says that it is natural, and how is it natural when our experience doesn't bear that out, that took 53 chapters.
of revolutionary insight into who we are and what Torah is and so on in order to show that it is in fact natural. But look at the question. Of all the topics in Judaism, this is what fascinated the Alter Rebbe. This is what he had to sit down and compose a response to this question. There are more profound questions. Most of the rabbis of his generation, when he asked them that question, they said, well, whatever. I mean, what is this, some kind of a scholarly debate? It says it's natural. It's natural. Well, it's not so natural. Okay, I mean, come on, big deal. Who cares? And the Alta Rebbe makes this the basis of his entire book. And for writing this book, he has to sit in jail under the threat of a death penalty for 53 days because he's answering this question. Where else in the Torah does the Torah say you have to get it? Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to put fringes in the corners of their garments. Okay. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them, these are the sacrifices you bring on these occasions. Okay. Speak to the children of Israel. Six days you work, seventh you rest. Okay. Where does it say anything about getting it? When do you and the Torah become one? When the Rebbe read that line, it is close to your heart and natural for you to serve God they ever said, ah, that's what I'm looking for. In other words, we have to get it. But how do you get it? It's not natural. So to show you how to get it, for this the Rebbe was willing to die. To teach those who study Torah how to get the Torah, he was willing to die for that. Because if you don't get it, then what are we doing? The sages, most of them, in the times of the Alter Rebbe, had no idea what he was talking about. We get it. I read it from cover to cover. I got it. The Rebbe says, so it doesn't bother you that the Torah says it's natural to love God and you don't? So, well, well, I do a little. Come on, that's not a big problem. They didn't get it. And most schools today still don't get it. You memorized, you understood, you asked a good question, you gave a good answer. Talmud Chacham. Next. (laughs) Pride and joy of the school and the community and blah, blah, blah. You don't get it. So how did the Baal Shem Tov introduce this notion without being too specific? He said, you know... A simple Jew who is not a scholar can be close to God also, in his own way. Hint, hint. (laughs) In fact, the simple Jew can be closer to God in some ways than the scholar, because it could be that the scholar doesn't get it. And the simple Jew gets it. It had to come in stages. So the Baal Shem Tov introduced the notion. He didn't spell it out. He didn't break it down for you. You kind of had to feel your way. Yeah, he's, he's onto something there. Yeah, there's something there. Yeah, these simple Jews, yeah, they're, they're great. They're great. They didn't get it. Al-Tadebbe had to break it down for them. 
And he did that with this revolutionary question. Torah says it's natural, but it's not. Can you imagine a rabbi asking such a question? Doesn't that sound a little bit like uh, heresy? Torah says it is. What do you mean it's not? It's not difficult to understand why there was such a resistance. It's not that anybody had anything to disagree with the Rebbe. You couldn't say the Rebbe is wrong. It was just like, where are you going with this? Why ask such questions? Let it be. Torah says it's natural. It's natural. Leave it alone. Don't stir up no trouble. Because once you start with the, oh, it's not natural, where is that going to lead? Al-Tareba said, I don't know where it's going to lead, but if we don't do this, then it's leading nowhere. Then you're not getting it. So what does it mean to get it? Torah says, by your nature, you are godly. You say, oh, good. What good? Have you looked at yourself? <laughs> that's, that, that's an answer to you, or does that present a question to you? So the Torah says, excuse me, but you are a very holy person. Doesn't that make you think like, you're talking to me? <laughs> you're not talking to me, are you? Because I know myself. Don't call me holy, because I'm not. Oh, no, no, you are, you are. Oh, okay, fine, I am. That's called not getting it. If the Torah says you're holy and you know you're not, you've got a serious problem. And you can't say, well, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> because after all, Torah knows best. I mean, Torah says I'm holy, I guess I must be. No, you don't get it. You're not acquiring it. You're letting it be. And I've heard rabbis sitting and giving Talmud classes, and somebody says, but, but it's not like that. But what does that mean? It's not like that. And the rabbi says, it's a Talmudic concept. What, is, <laughs> what exactly does that mean? It means it may not be true in, in life as we know it, but in, in Talmudic context, it's, it's, it's uh, according to the Talmud, it's true. Yeah, but it's not true in life. No, that's all right. It's all right. Things like the Talmud makes statements about nature. The black sheep always walks in front of the herd, of the flock. Black sheep always walk in front of the white sheep. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because when God created the world, first there was an evening, then there was a day. So dark comes before light. So the dark sheep walk in front of the light sheep. So somebody said, is that true? Really? White, black, dark, black sheep walk in front of the white sheep? And this teacher said, Talmudically. <laughs> in other words, if the sheep study Talmud... then they would know that the black one is supposed to walk in front. But uh, study Torah all your life and you don't get it. 
If your experience and what Torah says are at odds, what is your response to that? Let it be? Take it on faith? You don't get it. It's like somebody's trying to get through to you, and somebody's saying, listen, I'm very upset about this thing. And you say, all right, whatever. That's an answer? You don't get it. Actually, as long as we're on the subject, we were driving back from Northern California after Pesach a couple of years ago. We drove through the northern states. They were not as beautiful as they could be because it was early. It was still you know, early spring. But it's, it's a beautiful country up there. So we drove through um, antelope farms, bison farms. So we, we, went, we went off the road a little bit to see all these sites. And in one place we were trying to see the antelope, but all we got to see were the sheep. Black sheep walk in front of the white sheep. <laughs> and if once in a while a black sheep gets fablungit, well, that's what they call them, black sheep. <laughs> but that, and what we saw, and I, it struck me. It's like, look, there were only two black ones, and there were, you know, 30 white ones. The black ones would not let a white one get in front of them. Because first there's an evening, then there's a day. And sheep don't sin. If that's the way it's supposed to be, they get it. <laughs> but even if in fact, in actual fact, the black sheep did not walk in front of the white sheep, you've got to explain it. You can't just say, well, Talmudically. What does that mean? Then what happened? If they're supposed to be in the front, how did they end up in the back? Explain it. Ask the question. Look up the commentaries. Do something. Don't just pass it off as, well, you know, it's a Talmudic thing. Because then you end up saying, did God actually speak to Abraham and tell him? Well, you know, it's a biblical thing. Is it really Rosh Hashanah in two weeks? Well, according to the Jewish calendar. In other words, Nothing about Torah, God, Judaism has anything to do with reality. It's just one of those things. Don't get it. The whole point of Torah is to acquire it. It's not something that stands on a shelf. Why did God commit a fraction of Torah to writing? A fraction. All the rest is oral it's debatable, it, it's, it's rabbinic, it's messy. Because if you write it all down, it'll just stand on the shelf and you'll never get it. It'll just be a book. And that's not the purpose of Torah. The purpose of Torah is to acquire it. You know what you've got to do to acquire it? Not read it. 48 types of self-denial. You've got to wrestle with the angel. Wrestle with your nature to get it. And it's possible because those before us have already wrestled with the big angels.
We've already fought the major battles. Now we can get it. You've got to go past the surface. You've got to go past the natural inclinations. You've got to go past the, the superficial assumptions. Get to it so that it can get to you. And that's what the Alta Rebbe broke through for us. That was the angel he wrestled with. Can we make God available? We have his Torah. Now can we have him? And that's why when the Rebbe sent them his manuscripts to the Bardichever, the Bardichever Rebbe said, after reading it, he said, amazing. He put such a big God into such a little book. Tanya is not about Torah subjects. It's about getting him. For that, you had to wrestle with a whole new angel. Because that was never approved yet. So Yaakov wrestled with an angel so that there could be a chosen people on earth. Moses wrestled with an angel so that there could be Torah on earth. And the Altadebbe wrestled with an angel so that we could have God on earth. And that's why one God, one Torah, one people. Those are the three pillars. As the Zohar says, and this is probably what the Zohar meant, but would not explain it because it's Zohar. <laughs> God, Torah, and Israel are all one. You get it? You don't get it? You're not a Kabbalist, but we're not going to explain it to you. The Altarebbe came along and said, okay, I'll explain it to you. We brought the people down. We brought the Torah down. Now we have to bring God down because you can't have one without the other. Now you get it.